You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing. Welcome to FundFlow, a McGuire Woods podcast for emerging managers. I'm John Finger, and my guest today is Cheryl Mejia, who is the managing partner at Steward Asset Management. Cheryl leads sourcing, diligence, execution, and monitoring of anchor investments, targeting newly formed private equity and opportunistic strategies. She was also the Director of Emerging Managers at the New York State Common Retirement Fund, giving her an absolutely wonderful perspective on the emerging manager landscape. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for joining today. It's such a pleasure to be with you, John. It's your work with independent sponsors and funds is so impactful. Uh, I'm such a big fan. and uh, Thanks for the time today. Well, thank you. I appreciate those kind words. Let's start, Cheryl, and talk about your history in investing and how it ultimately led you to Steward Asset Management. Thanks, John. Steward is really, as you mentioned at the introduction, is one of a few players in the institutional investing landscape driving first capital to debut private equity funds. And we thrive in that environment of founders and capitalizing new firms and funds. And so Really, I think the background that built up to us being able to engage in that marketplace is multidimensional and really benefited from being in very large shops, but also some small ones. You know, Stewart is ultimately a combination of, you know, kind of three principles that set retrofit very nicely into what I've done, but find areas of the capital markets that are, there are gaps or there are capitals not abundant, you know, work with strategies that not require a lot of leverage and in sectors that have strong cash flows. And then, of course, the third most important part probably in any uh, new firm and, and any new initiative is that bring a, a team of extremely smart people together, both internally and in, across the table from you to deploy. So I left my MBA about 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. It's amazing. And joined Bankers Trust Company. So that name may not be known by all, but it was an innovation machine in its time, ultimately bought by Deutsche Bank. And luckily, I met my partners, David and Vera, today. There's actually seven owners of Steward, but they're two of the early ones that I called and and reached out to to bring our team together. But I worked in global equities, where in the mid-90s, that was a really innovative place because covering European and Asian small and mid-cap companies was the big diversifier and alternative investments was just on the horizon, just on the sun was just trying to arise on in terms of just even setting the terms that we would use in building a lot of new products. And so at Bankers Trust, I ended up moving out of global equities after working for a really dynamic, just global sector powerhouse, uh, knowledge powerhouse and Michael Levy as a portfolio manager, just learned a lot from him across so many landscapes in the world. And and, and took that skill and, and to spend the last half of my time at Bankers Trust over on the client side. I'd been a quant for a lot of my time and 
wanted to get a view there. So I was able to combine skills there. Ultimately, after a decade there, I left and worked for a family office. So going from big to small and a family office that was doing interesting private market activity in terms of funds and direct deals. And we ultimately uh, pulled together and launched a fund of funds uh, product, which continued my product launch experience from Bankers Trust through to the family office. And ultimately the family, the, the Schiff family, very smart family that benefited uh, through the 08 and 09 crisis, became the first client of Decagon. So I was happy to continue to work with them in the third iteration. And so we formed a consulting firm called Decagon Advisors. And uh, that was also a combination of the family office I'd worked with and some Bankers Trust colleagues. And for a decade, we uh, we did investment consulting on small private funds, covering the gamut from private equity to hedge. And also, we built a practice for launch consulting for debut managers. So continued that theme of building frameworks to support founders and in their path, in especially the early years where they need a lot of support. After a decade there, I turned the partnership over to my, to my partners. Uh, when I was tapped on the shoulder to join uh, New York Common Retirement Fund as the director of emerging managers. So back to a big shop. And uh, it was fantastic. St- started there with a portfolio of about $5 billion in assets. It was across all asset classes. And we realized very quickly that the private equity area was one of the most opportune, uh, especially in small buyout, one of the most opportune areas of the portfolio. We wanted to do more there wanted to do more in opportunistic strategies as well. And so with the leadership and guidance through a strategic planning initiative with controller DiNapoli and the CIO at the time, Vicki Fuller, we really uh, made plans to build out the private markets, the private equity components were some of the big part of the strategic plan. We had a lot of success there and we really realized that it's very opportune, small buyout and growth equity strategies have this you know, advantage uh, for small funds. And, and, and especially if you're deploying as an emerging manager program, because unlike every other asset class, they invest in a different universe than their bigger peers. And because uh, they you knew the middle market and lower middle market. And so they really are not competing neck and neck with deal flow and, and valuations uh, against the bigger peers. And, and once you put them in business, once you gave them that capital, they had five to seven years of time to really make that create value. And uh, we found that to be a, a great formula for, to get a lot of conviction around that market. But ultimately we wanted to go earlier and we wanted to help create bigger, wider pipeline. And part of the hallmark of that program was diverse teams, which made up about 70% of the, the managers of the 120 managers. And we realized there wasn't a consultant or advisor to really help us do that at scale. And so that's the observation that ultimately landed us at Steward. We, we realized it had to be a sole-focused firm anchoring and providing first capital because many of the larger emerging manager programs would become conflicted. They couldn't put the structure together of an anchoring where you take LP and GP economics together and uh, because they would be conflicted in their fund two and fund three allocations with other with their across all their separately managed accounts and, and fund products. So when we realized there wasn't a, a provider at New York Common, there, a light went off back to the capital gap. You know, other people haven't figured it out and uh, great values and great cash flows in this market. So Steward uh, came to life after that. Cheryl, that's great. Super helpful to understand how you got from where you were to today. And speaking of today, 
you know, the name of the game right now for really any GP in this hyper competitive fundraising environment is differentiation and flipping the script a little bit. Let's maybe talk um, about how stewards strategy is differentiated from other LPs as it relates to how they approach relationships with emerging managers and ultimately look to invest with emerging managers. Yeah, John, we've had the benefit, luckily, of allocating, looking at and allocating to hundreds of emerging private equity firms and seen that path. And what you were trying to create is the next Jose Feliciano or Frank Baker, or, you know, get them on that path. And so really trying to build better partnerships with those uh, emerging founders, understand the market needs of what they need to be successful and understand what we need to be and how we need to operate to win the deals we want to win. And that does mean really aligning with the talent. So there's, I think, three core things we differentiate on. One is it's very big differentiators that we allocate to fund one and fund two. So we put a package together criteria to unlock three tranches of capital. The last tranche will be in their fund two and their fund two may ultimately be in our second fund. That may be an allocation there, but our knowledge of the process going from fund one to a fund four, that life cycle of a, a manager as they build their, their strategy and build their firm is that the number one question on LP's minds are, is your fund one investor, is your fund two investor continuing to the next fund? And so that's very important. We actually um, save capacity in fund three and four for RLPs so that they can step in. So that provides even further continuity. But most seed investors forget this and are short-sighted. And so we really think this is an important component, probably the most important component of what we're doing. The second is that I think is really helpful to create success is that we do not take management fees in the first five years. And we actually try not to take them after year six, but we will take them in order to offset management fees across the board, ours and, and theirs, uh, so that we make sure we net our investors out at minimum of the management fees. We typically just try to take carried interest participation and get enough from that to really get in that return profile from two to three X, take a two to three X strategy, make it a three to four X through the life cycle. That said, you know, the reason we do that it's not because we're trying to be generous to the manager or, or give them a, a kickback after the J, personal J curve, getting the firm set up. It's so that it can build a firm so that we're not eating the seed corn. Private equity is a very attractive form of ownership. And the reason it's one of the most, it is the highest returning asset class, but it's because it's a very active form of ownership. And so when we think about teams in fund one, they have to be on this path of hiring. We actually cap salaries so that those management fees get reinvested in the firm and it creates a stronger base and they'll start adding team members. Well, I think of it in terms of going from fund one, where there's 10 investments to fund two, where there's maybe 10 to 15 investments. And that's a total potentially of 25 companies, you know, in this example, if they're going to take two board seats on every company, that's 50 board seats. And it's how many people you need to fill that roster. And so that active form of ownership that's very successful does require very hands-on management. And so team members and uh, investment in the firm is absolutely required early on. Otherwise, you can unhitch your success. The last thing I would mention, the third thing that we differentiate is our operating partner unit and our advisory board. These are some of the most dynamic people that I've worked with in the industry. And when we brought them together to create Steward and be co-owners of Steward with us, 
we realized that when we put a manager in the room with this team, they can see the global reach. Most members have 30 years of experience or more. And then they realize the potential of our force behind theirs, especially as they're going to get through those early difficult years where they're fundraising, doing first important deals, and just all that support that we can provide. So I would say we're trying to iterate with an informed lens to give founders and the strategy, you know, the support and strategy they need to get to a successful fund three and four. That's great. I want to talk a little bit more about this active coaching, uh, your, your GPs that you alluded to, whether it's through you and your colleagues, the operating partners. I think that's one of the things that as an LP with emerging managers truly is a way for you to make an impact and go beyond just differentiation, right? I mean, clearly lots of LPs are just checks and that's important to emerging managers, but maybe talk a little bit about that strategy within your investment activities. You know, dive into a little bit about some of the things that you bring to the table with GPs, how, you know, potentially how you vary your coaching with different GPs. Again, I'd, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about that because I, I really do think that's something that is really impressive that you bring to the table with emerging managers. Thanks. You know, it is about being one of the first LPs that will ask them the hard questions. And I think it starts about three months before they'll get a term sheet from us. And often the three months isn't necessarily our delay. It's really that they're not quite there yet to give us all the information we need. They're just building it up. The, uh, a lot of our framers can be helpful, but here's, I think of it in four, four key areas where we're, we're very impactful. One is that on the investor front, there's an efficiency in understanding the landscape. There may be 3,000 institutional investors who would love to learn about your strategy, but about 1% to 2% of those are ready to do an early close of fund one or even equipped on, you know, on a governance standpoint, but they'd like to have you in their sites for when they're ready for you. And so how to create efficiency in your LP relationship building, not just in terms of following up and and engaging and asking the right questions to understand what stage you are with each investor, where, where they want to really think and position you and when they can potentially be ready for you. And so I often say no is no for now, typically. If you've got a very compelling strategy, uh, they often definitely want to follow you, but very few will be first. And so trying to figure out who who needs the most attention early on is very helpful. Another area is operations, planning for stages of growth, planning for what the minimum standards are for capitalization, for operational side, and you know what can be outsourced at this an early stage and what can be brought in-house later. Some of those operational planning points are really quick. We often send a a vendor list off to managers uh, just so that they can start getting through those processes because hiring vendors can take some time and working through the contracts there, uh, which I'm sure you've helped with over the years um, negotiating those. Another area, you know, third area we think about, uh, which is different than operations, which is the sort of overarching foundational decisions you make about your business. Who's on the bus? Who's getting carry? Uh, what the ownership structure looks like? really being thoughtful about the LLC agreement and the management company between founders. If someone leaves, how do they leave positively in a positive leave or a negative leave, either, whatever way they're going to leave. Just in that long-term budgeting uh, for how capital is going to be added to the business. It's much more stable when 
there's a group uh, providing capital to the business. And the one thing I'm seeing a lot right now is in the foundational decisions is headquarters and geographic locations of teams. And it's very unnerving for LPs to see teams that have not worked together before being in different offices. That is something you can't always get yourself your head around. Keeping in mind alignment and what institutional standards, filling out even for your own benefit, ILPA's DVQ, just to know what the questions you should be asking yourself is also, also very helpful. The last thing I would mention is that, you know, one of the most impactful areas is the pacing of investments. Often deal makers, uh, I think on the deal level, but they're not always ready to or prepared in planning out the next five to 10 years of what the fund level decisions will be in terms of the first deals and how many realizations you need to have before fund two starts and whether you will be, there'll be a gap or you'll be out of the market and maybe you need to do a single fund or a single deal fund between fund one and fund two to, to meet that gap. If you don't have realizations in fund one, prefer not to do that. And so knowing how to think about the portfolio in terms of liquidity, time for you know the value add to really materialize and what the strategic trajectory is in your subsector of your industry. So some decisions like that, I think we're really, we can be very, very helpful in thinking through what year eight looks like in year one and what decisions are impactful that you need to make now, you know, what the impact is longer term. Interesting. So I guess one, one area you touched on, what guidance are you and your colleagues giving GPs as it relates to their overall fundraising strategy in today's re-up environment where it is so difficult, I think, to get those meetings, to get those new funds closed? What's been some of your overall guidance to emerging managers? In some circles, the re-up problem still exists for sure in some competitive sets. But it's also been augmented with the denominator effect where everyone's overweight their, you know, not everyone, but a good portion, many LPs are overweight their private equity. So it's even harder to get that coveted uh, parking spot with a premium LP uh, where they, they can only have 40 to 50 uh, GP relationships and how to, how to think about that. I, I think of it in two ways. Uh, one, in terms of guidance we give, want to make sure they have empathy for the LP's decision-making process. And when the LP's community is having problems, and maybe you need just to step back for a month or two, and this happens quite often where there's some shock in the market and you just need to be a source of information, not fundraising. And so empathetic to the LP. So if you were a, a large institutional LP and generally fully invested you were closing the books in the first quarter on 2021, a fabulous year. Everything worked. Your asset allocation is pretty much on target because you can move your equity book around and equities have, have rallied to adjust things as you need. Just as you were closing the accounting on 2021, this perfect year, the 2022 was upending all good plans. And we've seen this movie a couple of times in the last couple of years. Uh, and at the same time, the IPO window was narrowing. So PE wasn't distributing as fast and public equities are declining. And most institutional LPs were results in an overweight and private equity and a slowing down of their well-thought-out pacing program. But there were a few that were underweight private equity, and they've had this incredible opportunity to now 
get in at even better values. The other dimension of that is that certain private equity portfolios are heavier in VC and there's been some IPO declines and VC tends to have a higher loss ratio in 2022. looks like it'll be a little bit more challenging for that. It might play out to a, that higher loss ratio for venture portfolios that hasn't been seen in a number of years. And so some of those dynamics are coming to play. And so people have to rethink, they have LPs have to stop and reassess the, the environment. And that's where general part the GPs get a chance to be informative, provide visibility, but not necessarily say we'd like to close next month or three months now. When do you have a window to be in our, would it be a first quarter of 2023? Would it be the fourth quarter of 2022? When is your reasonable window that you get to work on this? The interesting thing is I, I'm going to talk my book a little bit because I think small buyout is in this beautiful spot of lower loss ratio, higher cash flows, and less leverage in this environment of rising rates where it's sort of tucked between VC and large buyout, benefited from lower rates for quite a long time. That's being changing. And it's, it's an interesting sweet spot that I think there's uh, there's been some, a lot of dedicated institutional investors that stayed in the middle market, love to get that exposure, but it's not the majority. The majority are underweight in the middle market. And I think there'll be a, uh, it's really a good time to be prepared to get to market and talk to investors because of the problems that are occurring in other parts of their private equity portfolio. And there'll be, I think, a, a greater focus on the middle market, lower middle market uh, because of the uh, more reliable cash flows and, and lower loss ratios. That's great. Very insightful there. Maybe talking a little bit about your pipeline and really your process. You know, I know you look at over 200 GPs a year. Uh, you funnel you know, a portion, say 50 of those, they're really into the pipeline and then start assessing fit and, and truly your conviction. What are some of the most critical things you look for in the general partner and the, the team as well, frankly, when considering an investment? Well, John, I'm sure you see this all the time that, that when you're bringing teams together to do a deal, the top of the list is this emotional maturity to buy a founder-owned business. And that's, that's a requirement of sourcing and, and vetting managers in the middle market. They're often buying founder-owned businesses or businesses that have been owned by a small group for a very long period of time before they take their first institutional capital. And, you know, I find there's a the different personality type to, you know, boots on the ground, you know, industrial founders or healthcare business founders or whatever sector you like with M&A bankers. There's a, it can be a, can be a gap there in their ability to talk to each other and, and be a good mix. And so we find the most successful teams have that emotional maturity to really um, not walk in and say, this is what we're going to do, but walk in and, and have a conversation with the founders and really understand, get, an, get an understanding of the business, but also build empathy in a working relationship. Second thing I'd mention is the really look for company or for teams that have this expertise that really allows them, I'll borrow from Tilly Franklin at Cambridge, she talks about bending the arc of companies. And I've, I just always love when she when she talks about that. It's really that ability to create multiples of value because you bringing more than capital. We see that right now. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the 
chemical company expertise right now and, and raw materials is, is such a premium with the rotating inputs to electric vehicles and the recycling and circular economy around that. Food ingredients and supply chains, there's very small number of experts that can not only fix the supply chains, but also are knowledgeable about the uh, changing consumer tastes. I call it the coked kombucha transition we're going through in food you know, or healthcare. Uh, healthcare is actually the, the, the sec- subsector expertise you need in healthcare is very different than a decade ago when it was, um, when it was more you know, roll-ups. Uh, and so the precision medicine and, and enhanced discovery and the technology that's being infused in the healthcare processes for just even delivery of the service Really, it's, it's driving wonderful outcomes for society and, and the inclusiveness, but it's really uh, a different set of expertise than you required a decade ago. So those are some of the things that we we think about. Um, maybe I'll add a couple, just a couple more that really are top of mind for us. Finding a team that's got a number of decades of experience that really have worked out a bad situation. That I always love to hear about the deal that didn't work or something you, you know, when you were a young analyst that you... You, know, you were throwing the deal that was already at po- marked down to 0.8 and you took it back up to 1.5. That's a skill set. That's a resilience you'd love to see. And, and the last thing I you know, mentioned on this, you know, just things we look for in GPs that may not be obvious or a top of list of you know, traditional due diligence is that when you're a new manager, you've got to build all these relationships and that building the loyalty is something we think of a lot. You know, can you bring a, loyal, a team together that really has trust and resilience uh, and we'll want to, you know, get through the next 10 years together plus, you know, 10, 10 years plus and, and uh, getting on to 20. The people who want to work together uh, as partners, GPLP partners, and also internally. Uh, so that's a lot about resilience and goal setting and uh, setting expectations uh, correctly so that everyone knows where, where you're headed. On that point specifically, how do you think about assess and frankly weigh the importance of scalability of a strategy you know it it feels like we continue to see that march from 200 to 450 to 750 to a billion with a lot of groups um how do you think about that question when assessing emerging managers it's interesting, John. You know, that those are definitely the headline numbers. You see these big, big funds coming out as as funds uh, teams march forward. You know, we're often talking to teams that are thinking about a 150, 250, 500 million dollar first fundraise, and we're actually testing their their desire for scalability because that's that's how we invest and we need to create capacity for our uh, institutional limited partners. And I think the top of that list is do they have the desire to build a big firm because there are some lifestyle changes that will happen in the process of being a founder and building a large firm. There are many small funds that can be very profitable and, and great return profile and stay under 250 million. And so we definitely, through our terms, actually in our anchor agreement, we improve their economics as they scale. So because that's what we work out our economic terms and how we try and build the next institutional fund. There is a there's a could be a very nice lifestyle to stay under 250 million and just do deals and have mostly family office investors. So that can be that can be important. But to your question of how do you sort of 
measure that future scalability. Of course, the market depth of strategy and experience of the team across various sizes is important too as a backdrop. If they definitely are on the path to scalability, then we need to test out, do they have the capacity in their machine, the repeatable process? Um, is there a market depth for it? And is the deal size flexibility already proven out on the team? So we love, um, that's what we're ultimately looking for, but it starts with really their desire to put in the, put in the, um, the elbow grease to get it done. What changes have you seen in the GP stake segment of investing with emerging managers over the years? Yeah, there's been a lot of growth, especially in the last decade. I mean, Dial led the headlines in terms of, and I think it was recently purchased by Bluell uh, from Newberger. So there's, I think of the GP stakes business in two ways. One, the the first is the, the big ones that uh, have now, I think, I believe there's a 50 billion in the marketplace between Dial, Peters Hill, Capital Constellation, and others that uh, will buy a stake in an already existing fund that may be on fund three, four, or five, and they'll take a piece of the management company, most typically, but it can take different pieces of economics, and they will own that in either perpetuity or self-liquidating status. They typically won't invest in the strategy. Our end, to contrast that, the GP stakes for debut funds, uh, which is where we compete with four pretty consistent competitors, and I think there's a couple of crossovers, so maybe make it seven in total, who are pretty much in market. We're still under about $5 billion in the marketplace today. Uh, it's not enough for what needs to happen. And that's capital to go into the fund, and that creates, through interest in the fund, it actually creates the man- initial management fees and stabilizes the firm. And for that initial fund investment, you receive a GP stake um, in interest. Not, I think just one or two of our competitors will take uh, ownership in the management company. Most of us don't. Uh, it's not as desirable on the smaller side. It's better to have the contractual rights without the, the liabilities. Uh, this is a marketplace that's still very nascent. Family offices used to be a big competitor, but they began doing more direct deals. So there's really less capital here. And it's an area where we're, you know, that this is why we created Steward because we want to create that bridge for teams to spin out or go from independent sponsor to a captive fund vehicle and allow them that bridge to create the next Robert Smith's or Henry Kravitz. <laughs> you know, we want to, we want to be backing those uh, teams that really have that desire to be their own founders and uh, create their own destiny. And we're trying to counterbalance the mega fund trends in uh, private equity that I believe are not, not eroding returns, I would say, but capping the returns because smaller funds, there's been many studies that show that if you're under a billion in fund size, the upside dispersion can be quite high. So the selection, the selection is, is uh, more rewarded on the, there's more alpha on the upside. Maybe take a, a bit of a more macro view here. What is your outlook for fundraising for the rest of 2022, you know, certainly here, many groups talk about they're already tapped out for 2022 and anything would have to be 23. But what is your um, broader outlook uh, for the rest of the year? And, and then also importantly, 23. I'm pretty positive. I don't think there's as much capital in the third quarter of 2022 to close as there will be in late 2022 and early 2023. Where I think 
the investment committees of some of the largest and, and midsize endowments and pension allocators is that they're struggling of how they're going to invest now, given inflation. And uh, there's no doubt that equities that are don't have a lot of leverage, back to speaking my book again, John, so <laughs> call me out here, but the inflation with growth story, if you have growth in the economy and there's inflation, the best place to be, the best asset class to have is, is an equity exposure. And if you have inflation without growth, then it's a much, much trickier sledding and you have to be in arbitrage type of strategies and alternative strategies and you want to be in special situations and more opportunistic things. And those are much harder to select and build relationships in at that opportunistic time when you need them. That is the top level of big investment committees are thinking. You know, I think there's a couple of very large players that are, have been underweight private equity and, and the biggest being CalPERS. Um, and they just announced a strategic allocation to increase their private equity book. That could have an outsized influence on the capital flowing as they put that money to work. So the interesting thing is in thinking of different types of investors geographically, I tend to think that right now institutional investors are more positive on the U.S. than a U.S. investor is. And the reason may be that it's maybe a simple viewpoint, vantage point, where the dollar has risen at the same time we've maybe down 20% our equity but the dollar going up has mitigated some of that. So we don't look as, you know, to a foreign investor looking in as we look to ourselves, feel, feel ourselves. And I think emerging managers should start fundraising internationally a little bit earlier uh, than they might have the inclination to do with oil prices going up and that strong U.S. dollar, the reinvestment of capital by foreign institutions. Uh, they're making great relationships. And the Middle East in particular has been extremely active and a very influential player in the U.S. private markets. And you're seeing them um, not just invest in the large players anymore. They're diversifying around. All this said, you know, fund ones have had an enormously hard time. You couldn't meet, you couldn't create relationships, but, you know, and and then the re-up environment was accelerated. Many managers, uh, many institutional allocators are not taking meetings, but now there are fewer fund ones in the market. And we really believe that if you've had the tenacity to stick it out, this early 2023 is a great time to actually put a little flag in the ground. Now, starting the summer with investors saying, listen, we'd like to get to your, your 2023 allocations. That's great insight, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I want to shift finally to two related questions based on your expertise and what you have seen over the years. I'd love to hear your advice to an emerging manager who wants to or is about to begin fundraising for truly their first committed fund. And then maybe also your advice for a GP who recently closed their first committed fund. And what sort of things would you stress as they build their portfolio and their future? Thanks, John. Lots of lots to mention there, but I'll, I'll just pick a couple of top ones. <laughs> that's a year in a nutshell. Uh, I think with the manager that's just getting out to market or just you know finishing their first iteration of their book, which you'll look back typically and be horrified by later, <laughs> later years, because you have to learn from the marketplace. You, you can't necessarily get the visibility, and we, we, we help with this quite a bit, but there still is who you're going to be partners with in terms of 
These are going to be really long-term partnerships. And you are likely, if you're getting a fund one investor who wants to be with you, likely you have a mission or benefit to them that you may not even know about. And I often like to say, people always say, are you a mission first organization? You've, you do the lower middle market. You're about economic growth. You're, you've got tons of ESG deals. You've got diversity teams. We don't identify as mission. <laughs> we don't identify as mission, a mission investor, but there may be some mission we're accomplishing for you. You'll help us discover this. And that's often a really good place to start. Not That's not for everyone, but that's how we handle it. I think calling yourself a mission or ESG fund is a very difficult hurdle, uh, which you know can get you in some extra attention in c- certain investor groups, can work very, very well. But really on a different level, away from even the mission things, understand what need you are filling on a risk level, on a sector level, uh, on a complementary learning level for investors. So that's, and you sort of iterate and you find that, uh, and then you end up swapping up your deck and describing your strategy different ways and you keep learning. Uh, I, we designate someone at every meeting to document the questions investors ask of us, because that is how you learn. You Every investor tells you why they either are moving forward or not moving forward through a meeting by the questions they ask. And that's, that's what we found. For a team that's recently launched and maybe passed their, their final close of, of Fund One, I think the biggest challenge is how to balance their leadership time properly and making sure they have systems to spend time in each important bucket of their firm. We all like to do what we like to do in the morning. I tend to get the things I don't like to do out of the way by 1030, <laughs> try to at least, but Everyone's got their method and you have to spend a certain amount of time in accounting and tax, certain amount of time with your service providers, even if you're not the COO. And then human resource development is cannot be underemphasized. Our assets are intangible and mostly team-based. So, you know, I think that balancing off the operational responsibilities across the team, so there are redundancies, very important. So that's an existing team that's getting through that, deploying their first capital. But Ultimately, you show on both cases, whether you're new to the market or you've just closed your first fund, anytime you underestimate what it takes, so you actually end up looking not very smart. And that's ultimately people will invest with a manager because they they are the best decision makers, great judgment. And so showing you're smart enough to really anticipate luck is preparation meets opportunity. So that preparation, anticipating what needs to get done ahead of um, it being urgent in that, that urgent and important box. So, you know, I I think the other, the final piece of it, I would probably add to that, uh, John, and I'm sure you can double up on this and you have even more stories than I do is that when I hear someone, they said, Oh yeah, we closed that in six months. (laughs) I laugh. I said, was that from your first, you know, the first subscription document you get to the last or, you know, what what was that? And typically that means that three years ago, I started talking, putting the bug in the ear of a a potential partner who then invested two or three years later to invest. And then that process took six months. So I will say budget for a long fundraise and and be happily surprised. But John, I'd love to hear your your thoughts. I'm sure you're called on for advice all the time. Yeah. No, I mean, that's great perspective. And and I certainly agree with you. I think some of those unicorn situations I've certainly seen, but to the point, they tend to be pretty unicorn. And as you alluded to, it it is all about that relationship between the GP and the LP and 
think one of the things that we always talk with our emerging managers around is, you know, as you think about those deals you're doing pre-fund on an independent sponsor basis, always be forward-looking and really think about crafting your investor network where ultimately you want to get the deal done, but importantly, how it sets you up for success as a committed fund manager and making sure that you're structuring your investor base that way and your relationships with that in mind, I think is super helpful. And to your point, it is all about a years upon years long process that a lot of emerging managers go through with their potential LP base to ultimately LP base. So absolutely agree with you there. Well, thank you, Cheryl, so much for coming on the podcast today, sharing just wonderful perspectives from the LP side, someone who's been in and around the emerging manager landscape for years and really insightful uh, commentary here. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of FundFlow, and we hope you join us next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of FundFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 